You're listening to the New City Church Podcast. These episodes are recorded live on Gadigal land. Sometimes the audio quality might not be perfect because what you're listening to is a conversation. We don't edit out the chatter. We think that's what makes it authentic. Wherever you're tuning in from, we hope you find this episode encouraging. So Ezekiel 37, Uh, the hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these are the bones of the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Well, good evening Um, again. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Joel and can I add my welcome to what Lindsay has already said and thank you for leading us through that, Lindsay, the Black Liturgy. That was beautiful, Um, really refreshing. Um, uh, Welcome once again. Um, If you are here for the first time or you've kind of just joined us now, we're in the middle of a series called Living Wild. Um, looking at all these different concepts of life throughout the Bible. And today we've hit this passage, Ezekiel chapter 37, which I think has got to be in the running for one of the weirder passages in the Bible. Like, it's, it's pretty odd. It's, um, you know, who has ever dreamt of seeing the decaying process in reverse? Um, super exciting stuff. It's, it's a bizarre passage, you've got to admit. And so today we're, we're going to unpack it a little bit. I hope it makes sense for you by the time that we get through where we're heading. Um, but I also hope that it throws up a bunch of questions and a bunch of challenging moments where you're like, oh, what does that mean? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. What does it mean that that is, that is the type of God that we have? And then as we head to the pub altogether, which you're all more than welcome to join us for, um, let's keep discussing those because there's a lot in here that we want to we nut out. Um, but before we do, I want to tell you a little deal that Thomas and I have as we start thinking through this. Um, we have a deal that if ever I get burnt out and exhausted from activism, I can say I'm done 
and Thomas asks no questions. And we just step back, step back. Um, and I used this, I used this a couple of years ago when I was doing lots of writing, lots of, um, you know, lots of appearing in different places, having coffee with thousands of people. It was just, I was so gung-ho. I was like, we've got to change the church. We've got to make the church better. We've got to change the world. We've got to make rights for forefront. We've got to be social justice warriors. And it hit a point where I was just exhausted. Um, I was dead, not literally. But I was just so spent. And uh, somebody who we really respect, somebody who we love, uh, was encouraging me to write just one more opinion piece for the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, And I just couldn't come at it. I was sitting at my laptop, staring at the screen, trying to work out what what words am I supposed to say? Um, And I just said to Thomas, I can't do it. I can't, I, I, I can't do it. This isn't something that I am capable of doing right now. I'm tapping out. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful just to tap out entirely. And for months, uh, I, I didn't speak about justice in the church. I just stepped aside entirely. And it was really refreshing just to stop. But for me at that point, I was tired um, I was exhausted and I, I was spent. Um, it felt like I'd been striving for a long time, but at that point, I could not see where God was working. Um, if you had asked me, where do you see sparks of the Holy Spirit moving? Nothing. God was not present in the work that I was doing. It was infuriating and disheartening and exhausting all in one And so Thomas very graciously let me just tap out and ask no questions. Um, I know for a fact that there are people in this community who are at a point in their journey, it might not be to do with social justice, might not be to do with queer matters, might not be to do with spirituality, but you're at a point in your life where you are dry uh, and exhausted and spent. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are just coming out of it, which is lovely to see. Um, Some of us feel ourselves going into that, and that's terrifying. And the more I sat with this passage this week, the more I was like, wow, this is a very relevant moment for our church, I think. Uh, the, The idea that we could be surrounded by a valley of dry bones spent looking at each other, being like, where is God in all this? Where is God when Jerusalem is under siege? We'll get to that. Where is God when we're working our butts off and we just can't see fruit or healing? Where is God when all of that is happening? So tonight, I hope I hope that uh, as we speak, think, sit in the Bible, sing, go to the pub. I hope that tonight you feel like that process is reversed a little bit, Uh, like the spirit of God starts moving and you start to see some flesh on dry bones. And I hope that's a source of hope for you. And to those who are joining us online, I hope that you also can connect and feel that as you consider the God that we have who is restoring all things. 
Um, so that's where we're heading. I've got four points, dot points, um, to help us think through them. And they're up here. Um, in this vision, we see a restorative movement of God. We see resurrection power. We see an invitation to speak ruach words. We'll get to that. Um, and we also see a warning, I think, to those who dare speak. That, that's where we're heading. There were lots of R's, and I didn't even mean to do that. Um, it just happened, which means that the Holy Spirit is in this message. Um, uh, that, that's where we're heading. Um, restorative, resurrection, ruach winds, and then a warning. Before we do that, though, I feel like we need context for this passage because it's weird. Like, you've got to admit, the Bible is weird. It's, it's bizarre. Like, let's just name it, not, not beat around the bush. The Bible is a strange book, and this is one of the pinnacles of it. Um, it's the book of Ezekiel, and I have a little bit of a timeline that I hope just places it in context. 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel, the northern part of this kingdom, falls. Assyria comes in, takes, or is it Babylon? I always get so confused. One of them comes in, takes over, falls, collapse, disaster, sad. It's a moment of grief for this country. For a long time, I tried to think of analogies for what that looked like. And then I realized how foolish it was of me to be struggling to think of them because it is everywhere. Uh, when a people comes in and gets wiped out, it's devastating. It causes trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And we see that in our First Nations people. We see that, I think, currently in Russia. Ukraine, we see the obliterate, we, we see the heartache and the breaking down of culture and people. Fast forward a little bit, and in 597 BC, so we're talking two and a half thousand years ago, 10,000 people from the southern kingdom, so the, the, the kingdom that's still standing of Israel, get taken off into Babylonian exile. Ezekiel takes place in these really turbulent geopolitical waters. Ezekiel is one of those 10,000 people. So Ezekiel is a prophet within Israel. He's one of those 10,000 people. Other people who get taken from Israel to go to Babylon, this, this first exile, we call it. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, Daniel uh, from Daniel in the lion's den fame. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if those names ring a bell for you. Um, you know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and the writing on the wall, literally where we get the saying, writing on the wall. All of that happens in exile with these 10,000 people that get, that get taken. Um, so I think in the next slide, we, we have it. Oh, there's the geography. Um, it says Israel, and they get taken to the east that's important. They get taken to the east, to Babylon, and there they live. And it's not actually too bad a life. Like if you read the book of Daniel, if you read some of the other books that go on, it's, it's an okay-ish kind of life. But the heartbreak is that they're no longer in their homeland. And for Ezekiel, the homeland, Israel, centers around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city. It's the jewel in the crown of Israel. And at the center of Jerusalem lies the temple. 
And the temple is where God dwells. And so everything in Israel, its whole life revolves around this idea that God is at the center, dwelling amongst the people of God. God is present with God's people. And it's this wonderful communion between the people and God where they can enter into the temple with some caveats. They enter into the temple and they can be there with God. These 10,000 people are ripped from their homeland, from the temple, from Jerusalem, and they're taken over to Babylon. The book of Lamentations grieves this, that they, they can no longer be in the presence of God. The next slide tells us what happens next. In chapter 11 of Ezekiel, something drastic happens. The first 10 chapters are Ezekiel writing back to Israel from Babylon to say, get your shit together. Stop worshipping other gods like Molech and Baal that demand child sacrifices. Quit it. Stop bringing the blood of your enemies into the temple of God. Stop it. Because Israel has gone so far astray. They've, they've abandoned Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, and they've followed after the gods of the nations. And so they've literally set up idols and shrines within the temple of God. And this law that Israel had centered around justice and bringing in the oppressed and rise, raising up the marginalized, centered around that, they've abandoned it. And so year after year, jubilee after jubilee, they've become more and more corrupt over hundreds of years. And Ezekiel is saying, you need to cut it out. Chapter 11, God leaves the temple. I remember uh, I was in my third year of Bible college and I was translating this passage from Hebrew into English um, super nerdy thing to do. Um, I was in an exam working through it and I got to chapter 11 and I read the verse where God leaves the temple and I felt my heart start racing and I had to put my pen down and I felt myself start shaking. God can't leave the temple. Like, that's not an option. That's, that's not something that God does. And I think the reason that it hit me so hard was because I was so pissed off at God. Because I knew, even in my third year of studying theology, I knew that God had left me. I knew that God wasn't present in my life. I hadn't prayed for months. I read the Bible and couldn't stand it, but I wrote essays about it so I didn't have to engage with it. I knew that God wanted nothing to do with me, and so I was running the other direction. And the reason I knew all this was because people had told me over and over again that if I was who I actually knew I was, then... I wasn't allowed into the presence of God. And so I looked at God and I said, okay, screw you. 
And when I say screw you to God and I read in Ezekiel that God says, okay, I'll leave. Why the hell would God leave the temple? Why the hell would God leave me? That's not something God is allowed to do. God's supposed to be faithful. God's supposed to be present. God's supposed to be the rock. Everything else can fall apart. We can run as far as we like, but God's supposed to still be there. So I thought. And so I was sitting in this exam crying. Like I I was, I had tears running down my cheeks thinking it makes sense. It's devastating, but it makes sense. The problem isn't that I've been trying too hard to get close to God. The problem is that God's left. He's done it once. Ezekiel chapter 11. He can do it again. 2017. And it was heartbreaking for me. Let's fast forward a little bit further. Um, In 586, Jerusalem falls. This is recounted in Ezekiel chapter 33. It reminds me of a scene from Lord of the Rings. It's that kind of energy that's happening. Jerusalem has been under siege for 12 years at this point. They've been locked inside as the Babylonian army has gathered around and laid siege to the city, this jewel of Israel. And verse 21 of chapter 3 says, In the twelfth year of our exile, this is Ezekiel speaking, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. Jerusalem, the jewel of Israel, is no more. It's gone, obliterated. God has abandoned God's people. What a bastard. Bit of a jerk. That's what I felt like as I was reading this passage, um, as I sat with it. You know, I, I know that Israel screwed up. I know that Israel has done the wrong thing. They've, they've kind of, you know, they've gone astray. They've done some pretty nasty stuff. But God's supposed to be the faithful one, yeah? That's, that's what's supposed to happen here. Uh, it's into that context that this prophecy takes place. And God appears to Ezekiel and he says, look at this valley of dry bones. Look at this valley of the people of Israel, dead, exhausted, no life. Here they are. What's next? Do you, Ezekiel, think that these bones could come to life? You tell me, Yahweh. Speak to them. Prophesy. And so Ezekiel starts speaking to the bones of Israel. And that's where we start 
to see this hope emerge. And I think in this passage, I got to it, even as I was doing this exam, reading through Ezekiel, going through bits and pieces, and I started to see a different side of God emerge. And that's where I want to sit for a little bit. And so if we have the next slide, a restorative movement of God. And I want to undo a little bit of what I think is toxic theology uh, from my perspective as we think through this. There's, There's a few different ways that justice can be understood when it comes to how we work with those who have wronged us. Um, and I think the best way to think this through is, for me, in, in my work, uh, is looking at how we treat, um, and this is a little bit left of field, so bear with me, is how we treat young Aboriginal offenders. That, that's what I've been watching in my line of work over the last little while. We know that uh, young Aboriginal boys in particular are hugely overrepresented within the criminal justice system. They're hugely overrepresented within juvenile justice, uh, within the prison system, with police records, cautions, the the whole lot. Um, And so a little while ago, a group of elders got together, Aboriginal elders, and they recognised this isn't working. And so they approached the juvenile justice system and they said, let's work together to create a new way of working with these, these young offenders, they're called. Um, up to this point, we had had what we'd call a re- retributive way of doing justice. That is, you step out of line, you get punished. You make a mistake, you get put in prison. And that, so that's retribution. You do something wrong the law comes down on you and you get in trouble, yeah? That's, that's retribution. That is how a lot of Christians see God. And I think that is how the Old Testament is usually taught within evangelical spaces at the moment. It's you step out of line, bam, God comes down on you, but on Jesus, but bam, he should have come down on you. Um, that, that's how we're taught to think about how God works. It's this quid pro quo, tit for tat kind of deity who could be quite offended by what you've done. And so justice needs to be doled out and it falls on you. That, that's re- retributive. Like it, it's justice that comes down as punishment. The Aboriginal elders approached juvenile justice with a new approach, and we now call it Koori Court, and it's brilliant. And what happens is if a young Aboriginal man breaks the law, they get to join in this Koori Court process where a group of elders and community members and their parents and the one who has been offended gather together in a room and they discuss what's happened, and they discuss why a breakdown of relationship has occurred and why this has caused harm. And sometimes it goes once, sometimes it goes twice, sometimes it lasts six times. But the goal of it is to bring back a restoration so that this young person doesn't end up in prison. This young person actually ends up contributing to society in a new way because they've found healing and relationship and restoration. Yeah? I think God's justice is restorative. 
I think God's justice is restorative. And here's the pattern that we see over and over and over again throughout particularly the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, it feels like what's happening is punishment and retribution. It feels like it is. But always at the last moment, you see the other side of the coin and God says, but wait, I want to draw you in. I want to draw you closer. I want you to be closer to me so that you can experience the blessings. In Ezekiel 11, when God leaves the temple and Bundy's on out of there, the, the part that I missed as I was translating it was the direction that God heads. He heads east. Who was in the east? It was the people who'd been ripped from their homeland. It was Ezekiel. It was Daniel. It was Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It was the people who were crying out, we want to be with God. And so God says, yeah, I'm not confined to this temple. I'll come with you. I'll meet you where you're at. I'll come into Babylon. I, God, will come into exile so that I can be with you. Sounds like something Jesus did. This is the God who restores, and that's the justice that God seeks, which kind of flows on to the next section, this resurrection power. I used to think that the pinnacle of the story of the Bible was when Jesus was resurrected. I don't think that that is the pinnacle of the story of the Bible anymore. I think that the pinnacle of the story of the Bible is when Jesus restores all things to himself. That's, that's the resurrection that we long for. And th this is the first time in the biblical canon that we actually come across this concept of resurrection. Um, it's, it's the first time that God brings new life in this kind of way. And I think uh, the mistake that the Corinthian church made, for example, was they got so worked up about Jesus' resurrection, they forgot about everything that was to come. Uh, they forgot that it's not just Jesus who was raised to life. This is just what God does. God is in the business of resurrection, of renewal, of restoration. That's the character of God. And so when Ezekiel starts speaking, we start seeing the sinew and the flesh and the skin start coming around these dry bones. It's the type of God that we have. It's God's very nature to bring about resurrection. And we're left wondering, I think, well, what does that mean practically? What does that mean that, you know, this, this weird I'm going to call it an analogy is used because I don't think God is talking about something that will actually physically happen in this passage. Maybe he is, but I, I don't think that that's what's happening. And the reason I don't think that is because the very chapter before, in chapter 36, God tells us exactly what's going to happen without metaphor. Um, and he says, Israel, I'm going to bring you back to the temple. I'm going to bring you back into Jerusalem. 
I'm gonna bring you back so that we can be back in relationship. And then all the nations will know that I'm God. And uh, I think, and, and lo and behold, that's what plays out. But I think what we see here is the first of a pattern that emerges. Um, and that pattern is a God of resurrection. And I think what we're invited into here is to start asking, where is God bringing new life now? Where is God bringing resurrection now? And so that's the next one, an invitation to speak ruach words. Ruach is the Hebrew word for a bunch of things. But in this passage, breath and wind. And I think we miss it in our, in our um, English translations because... We just do. Um, In verse five and six, for example, let me read this to you. Um, This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath, ruach, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin. I will put ruach, breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And then we come down to nine and he says, Prophesy to the Ruach, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come Ruach, come breath from the four Ruachs, from the four winds, and Ruach into these things. What we see is God is moving and wind and breath. I think there's supposed to be this overlap, this play. Just as you can't understand where the wind is coming from, where the wind is going to, and yet it is there, so too we see the work of God. It's this mystery. It's this mystery, but it's not a mystery that happens on its own. In this passage... Who is speaking the breath? It's Ezekiel. Ezekiel is speaking these words and this wind starts flowing. I think we see an invitation to actually take part in this type of prophesying. Uh, Judith Gruber says this. Oh, it's little, isn't it? Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones, this oldest of the biblical imaginations of resurrection, offers a powerful image for a wounded world in deep transformation. I I love that. Um, It's a powerful image for a wounded world. Our world is wounded. Our world needs a ruach that brings life. Heck, I need a breath that brings life. It gives a stark portrait of the pervasive power of death, and yet it also speaks to an abiding desire for life in the midst of annihilation. In Ezekiel 37, it's through the prophetic proclamation of the Word of God. It's through Ezekiel speaking these words that the bodily remains are brought back to life. New life emerges from the debris of death through prophetic speech commissioned by the word of God. In what ways are you speaking words of new life? 
In what ways are you speaking and proclaiming, here is the Spirit of God working? I imagine Ezekiel was kind of worried, a little unsure. Here's a valley of dry bones. Speak life. You're not going to be thrown into the context where there's a valley of a whole bunch of dry bones. That's not something that you're going to walk into tomorrow. But you are going to walk into a weary world that feels wounded. When you came in here, you were surrounded by people who feel the weariness of the world. And your presence, just by being here tonight, your presence says, I think we have a God who's bringing healing. So thank you for being here. Thank you for even timidly declaring that with your presence and taking part in restoration, I want to say. You might not even realize that's what you did, Um, but you did it. So thank you. Congratulations. Um, We start to see when we open our eyes new ways that God is moving. When we have conversations and we ask, hey, where where do you see God at work in your life at the moment? How would you answer that? How do you think the person next to you would answer that? You don't know until you ask it. And I get excited about the fact that God, in all of God's wisdom, could have just sent that breath, could have just sent that wind, and up comes the dry bones. It could have happened. But instead, God sent Ezekiel, a prophet, supremely unqualified, yet there nonetheless. And I wonder if there's space for us to sit in Ezekiel's shoes. And so we are the dry bones, but we can also take part in what Ezekiel is doing. But here's the warning. Here's the warning that I want to get to. And I want to listen to Judith Gruber again. This one's a little bit complex, but sit with me as we go through it. Today, theological reflection is faced with a growing awareness that the proclamation of God's word is not only and not self-evidently life-giving. In other words, sometimes when we preach God's word, self, uh, life doesn't necessarily come about. Not least, a critical review of modern mission history has revealed that it can also bear death. An exposure of the entanglements between mission and colonization has shown how deeply Christian God talk is implicated in the necropolitics of empire whose power rests on the sovereignty to kill, with the colony as location par excellence of the exercise of such power over life and death. Entangled into empire, Christian mission has taken place under its necropolitical conditions. The proclamation of the gospel has been moulded into both strategies of resistance to and complicity with the lethal ways 
by which the empire promises peace and prosperity. Let me flesh that out a little bit because it's quite wordy there. Christian mission has partnered with the colonizers to decimate culture, to decimate language, to decimate people. And we see that so starkly in Australia with our First Nations people. The way that Christianity jumped in bed with power in order to make a name for itself at the expense of generations. And so naturally, we as the church need to sit with that. We need to sit with the fact that the gospel was used as a weapon. That's, that's the reality. And so all of these people, thinking that they were Ezekiel, came in and they didn't speak words of life. They speak words of death. And we need to be really careful that we don't follow in those footsteps. And so that's the warning. Now, there's a few things that I want to just tap into really briefly to say, here's the realities, let's avoid these. When churches become obsessed with money, dangerous territory. When people become obsessed with money, dangerous territory, because money corrupts. When Christians take part in colonization, dangerous territory. When Christians seek power, dangerous territory. When tradition trumps the ability to speak love, dangerous territory. You see, I think Judith Gruber was onto something, this brilliant Catholic mind, when she said, Christians have taken part in necropolitical warfare. That is, politics of death in order to gain power and prestige. And my prayer is that New City Church won't fall into that trap. That New City Church will be a place where we can speak words of life. Okay, that's my little warning to those who would dare speak. But where does that leave us? I'm going to wrap us up here. Uh, God left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 11, but God left the temple in order to be with God's people. God's people now are crying out for God's presence. And here we sit in 2022 in the midst of brokenness and woundedness, shame and heartache. And for some of us, we're just weary. Yeah? exhausted. If that's you and you feel like you come to this space as dry bones, I hope you can hear, start to discover the words of Ezekiel and also the words of the people in this space who proclaim that God's spirit is moving, that there is resurrection and new life. I hope that this is a space where you can rediscover 
that reality. And for some of you, you come here in a space where you're starting to see God move or you've been watching God move or you're like, I think that's God. And I think the invitation of this passage is to start speaking. Start speaking words of life and restoration, good theology, which builds people up, brings people in and understands this overflow of love that God has for humanity. That, that I think, is the challenge of these passages, that we actually get to be in the presence of God. Gosh, that's good.